when you consider our Congress today, kind of have to stop and ask yourself, gosh, what, what would make our Congress unite and bow before God in prayer? Not, not as a formality or the beginning of proceedings, but just to pray. What, what would lead our Congress to unite and beseech God's blessings on our country in song? Well, we know what it took for that to happen. As a matter of fact, even ten years later, we can still look back and it's just hard to believe that actually happened in our, in our country. I, I guess every generation has a where were you question. Man, don't you now pray, God, may there not be another question that could possibly supersede the question, where were you on 9-11? I was at uh, church that morning, as I, I was on staff at First Baptist North Spartanburg, and I was leading a, uh, a staff meeting with a small group of our staff, and somebody came into the room to give us some materials. They didn't come in to make an announcement, they came in to give us some materials for our meeting, and while they were in there, they said, hey, there, there's been a plane that, that crashed into one of the Twin Towers. We began to talk about that for a moment, clearly not thinking or understanding the magnitude of what was going on. I don't know why. I think we just assumed that it was a, you know, a small private plane had, had had an accident. It crashed into the, into the building. You know, you figure, gosh, you know, you know at least one person has died and, and, and you wonder what happened inside the building. And, and we talked about it for a moment and oh, we went on with our meeting. Of course, you know how that morning unfolded. It wasn't but about 20 minutes later that that same person came running back into the room and said, uh, another large commercial airliner has crashed into the other tower. We're under attack. You know, and you hear that. You're, you, I mean, your first thought is, is this a joke? We, we, we got up out of that room and, and we came into what was our, our sanctuary and we had, we had big screens like this and the... The news was up there, the staff was watching it, as if you needed to watch what was going on larger than life. As if it needed to be on a big screen. And we sat there and we were watching, and I remember, and I'm sure whether you were with a group or in your home, you didn't talk, did you? You just watched, and there was just nothing but confusion and bewilderment. And, and boy, as that unfolded, you remember, we didn't know what was still to happen. I mean, e- e- even a little bit later, when, when, the, when the situation at the Pentagon took place, we still, we didn't know what the rest of the day held. We didn't, is this going to go on at the Sears Tower in Chicago or, or Miami or Dallas? You know, we didn't know what was going to happen the rest of that day, the rest of that week. And, and do you remember, for the first time in my memory, and I'm wondering if it was the first time in American history we were scared. America was scared. I don't remember what time it was, but that afternoon, uh, we tried to get word out the best we could that, that the church would be open that night. and we, We'd you know, have prayer, we'd gather. Uh, you know, send out an email, you'd make a few calls, try to get some word of mouth. Not, not a great way, you know, if you're trying to get a large crowd. I mean, don't have much time. I guess that's why I was a, a little surprised that, man, when I walked in the room, I mean, there's over a thousand people there that night. And of course, what was going on at First Baptist North Spartanburg was not at all unique. 
It was going on in every church. It was going on all across the country. We didn't want to be alone. You wanted to gather. You wanted to be with family, with friends, with with church. You wanted to be with others. And we didn't get together to pound our chest. We, We didn't get together to talk about our answers and our power and our strategy for revenge. I mean, none of that was what anybody was talking about. We just got together to confess our our need for each other and our need for God. Boy, that need for each other, it kind of it birthed a patriotism that had waned, hadn't it? Kind of a new love, a new appreciation for, for country and, and for each other. Why, why, does it, why does it take, and this isn't just true with 9-11, it's just true with human life. Why does it take a tragedy for us to remember? For us to appreciate, for us to love, for us to respect those things that are are most important to us? Why does it take a tragedy for us to seek after God humbly and genuinely with no no agenda? You know, I, I think the fact that it's so often, whether it's on an individual basis or a national basis, the fact that it does take some horrific crisis to do that. You know, folks, it points to the arrogance that's in all of us. The arrogance, the pride, the complete lack of confidence in self. My answers, my power, strength, my wisdom. Arrogance always pushes away. Always isolates, always separates. It's humility that draws close. Close to God and close to each other. And I'm sure you'd say the same thing I would. God, I I don't want it to have to be a tragedy. I, I don't want a tragedy to, to have to lead me to genuinely, humbly seek after you. I don't want there to be a tragedy for me to have to love and appreciate and respect my, my family and friends and church, my country. But it was that tragedy on 9-11 that maybe caused a lot of us to think about that again and to remember and to respect and, and to appreciate It was that tragedy that united our Congress for a moment. That tragedy that united our country for a moment. It it was that tragedy that united us just for a moment to look up to God. It was just a moment, wasn't it? Do you remember the, the months, maybe even a full year after that? You remember hearing this phrase all the time, we will never be the same. We will never be the same. And and there's certainly some truth to that. Dale mentioned a moment ago. I mean, obviously things have changed in the airport. Some laws have changed. There's some things that are are different now. And and you know what? I I don't know what every person meant on the news or in culture and society. I don't know exactly what they were implying or meaning when they said we will never be the same. But folks, I have to tell you, my opinion, we are the same. Or worse. I believe in the United States of America today. We are more godless and more arrogant than we have ever been. That's not to say God's not doing some great things in the United States. That's not to say there's not some good Christian people making some good things happen in the United States. But we are a godless nation. An arrogant nation. We are as greedy and money-centered and selfish as we have ever ever been and it'll drive us into bankruptcy 
We are as immoral and perverted as we have ever been. We are today as a nation as far from God as we have ever been. In our nation today exists a hatred and an anger and a divisiveness. I I don't know if it's the most that's ever been, but I can imagine the only thing that would parallel it would be those moments as we headed into the Civil War. And yet for a moment today we gather again, don't we? For a moment we are united again as a country. All across this country we are gathering, we are uniting, and, and we're united in this. We're remembering I am sure 98% or more of the churches today are, are, are doing what we're doing. Maybe a little more, maybe a little less, but, but some semblance of what we're doing, that's what, that's what they're doing too. In church, we're remembering. In the newspapers, we're remembering. In, in TV programs all this week and all day today, we're, we're remembering. In the, in the athletic events, athletes are saying, man, we will remember. We will, we will never forget. I saw it all day long yesterday. We are remembering. What? What, what, what are we remembering? That a lot of people died? That, that we were scared? That we were patriotic? That we sang God bless America more in the months that followed than we had probably in the prior 25 years? What, what are we remembering today? And maybe the bigger question than that is, what difference does it make that we remember? I don't mean that in any sense of disrespect, and certainly to those who experienced loss on that day, but what difference does it make that we remember? You see, folks, I think something of that magnitude and that size demands an evaluation, doesn't it? Individually, nationally, and not just an evaluation where I sit silently for a moment and think a little bit about it, an evaluation that changes something, that leads us to strive after better, to to be better. What difference will it make on 9-12 that we remembered on 9-11? You and I particularly have chosen to, to remember this day inside of, a, inside of a church. What's the church doing with this day? You know, maybe only a pastor thinks this way. I don't know. I've been wondering that all week long. I mean, you know, if you think about it, there's a variety of directions you can go with today, isn't there? A number of themes you could pick up and run with on this day. I could, I could go to dozens of different passages to, to kind of support and help as we do this day. Man, we could, we could deal with Thanksgiving today. I mean, think about it, folks. With all of the threats and all of the evidence that suggests otherwise, we haven't been attacked like that in the last 10 years. And we, we could stop and give thanks for that. We could stop and think about the things that are right and good in our country and give thanks for that. We, we could take today and use that as we did in the prayer time a moment ago and think about humi- uh, humility and repentance. And we could think about what's wrong and, and, and what is godless and what is an affront to God. And we could use today to confess sins and try to get right. Man, we could use, there's a whole host of things. where man, We need God's help in this country. And, and we could use that to pray. We, we, could, we could go to the Old Testament and look at the nation of of Israel and, and see a handful of places where they were in a very similar situation. And what did they learn? What did God want them to learn? How did they respond? Is there, is there lessons we need to take from that? I mean, there's a lot of ways we could go today. I think it'd be interesting to kind of fly over the landscape of America and just drop down into, into church after church. I just want to see, what are they saying? 
What passage did they use? What, what, direction, what direction did they go? I, I tell you, I, I landed on 2 Peter chapter 3. You may want to turn there now. It's a, uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, we've got some in the chairs in front of you. 2 Peter 3 is near the end of your New Testament. As a matter of fact, if you just turn to Revelation, the last book, and, and go to your left, you'll run through some really small books, like one-page books. Jude, 3 John, 2 John. 1 John's got a couple pages to it. And then you'll be in 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 3. Now, I, I came to this passage uh, because I think this is a group of people. Peter's writing a group of people that there, there is some similarities. Not identical, obviously. There's, they're feeling a lot of the same emotions that you and I are feeling, but, but for a different reason. You, you and I are considering a national tragedy. We're considering loss. This is a group of people that was being heavily attacked because they were Christians. No more, no less. They were Christians. They were followers of Christ, and they were being attacked. And so they're suffering because of it. Like us, different reasons, but like us, they're experiencing economic loss. Like us, they're experiencing loss of life. Like us, they're living in a, in a world that is godless and they're probably the belief it'll never get better. I, I mean, nothing's going to change this. And they're living in this world and, and Peter speaks to them. He, he addresses this to give them direction. And that's, that's what I'm looking for today. Not just what am I supposed to do with 9-11. This is the direction I'm seeking. God, what do you want me to do with 9-11? What a difference is it to make in my life that I stopped and remembered 9-11? What's the direction that you want me to go as we look back? And this group of people is also dealing with world events. They're also dealing with a crisis that is hitting them. And Peter sends them to the future. You know, folks, I, I don't know what's going to happen with our economy, if and when it'll rebound. I, I don't know what's going to happen with the moral climate in the United States, if it's going to get better or worse or, or stay the same. I don't know. I, I don't know if in America we're going to do with 9-11 what we should do with it. I don't know any of that, but I know this. Jesus Christ is returning. And regardless of the culture, regardless of the time of period in history, regardless of the crisis, nothing should define my life, nothing should define my thinking more than that fact. Jesus Christ is returning. That, that should shape me no matter what I'm living in. That should give direction to my life. As I'm considering 9-11, I'm considering, hey, in this 9-11 world, Jesus Christ is returning. So what do I do, Lord? In light of your return, in light of where I live, what do I do? And this is where Peter begins to give some direction. Now, as you open chapter 3, beginning in, in verse 1, Peter begins to talk about uh, uh, the character of the times that you and I call end times. Those times right before Christ returns. And, and if you read that, you say, hey man, it sounds like we're describing us. This is right where we live. This is right where we are. And, and Peter casts that hope. Hey, the, the Lord is going to return. But then Peter deals with a question. He deals with that question. Well, if the Lord's returning, where is he? I mean, it's been a long time. I mean, it's been 30 years. That's what it had been for Peter. He's already addressing the question of, now I know Jesus said he's going to return. I know that's a promise. And I know it's been 30 years. And he's addressing it. Can you imagine what we would say to Peter today? Hey, Peter, it's been 2,000 years. You know, if somebody promises you something and it takes 2,000 years to fulfill it, I mean, don't you at some point say, you know what, just never mind. I mean, just, just, just forget it. Like, I'm going to live on that promise. 
I mean, they, I mean, you can mock the promise, you can doubt the promise, you can just forget the promise. And that's what Peter said. No, 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 don't do any of that. Don't take God's slowness. Don't, don't let, let that lead you to doubt, but rather you seize that as God's patience. You seize that as an opportunity. And so this is what Peter is talking about up through the first 13 verses when we come to verse 14 and he begins to give you and I some instruction. Look at that there, 2 Peter 3 verse 14. It says, therefore, dear friends, while you wait for these things, make every effort to be found in peace without spot or blemish before him. Also, regard the patience of our Lord, that is his not coming, Regard the patience of our Lord as an opportunity for salvation. Just as our dear brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. He speaks about these things in all his letters in which there are some matters that are hard to understand. The untaught and the unstable twist them to their own destruction as they also do with the rest of the scriptures. Therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard so that you are not led away by the error of immoral of the immoral and fall away from your own stability but grow grow in the grace and knowledge of our lord and savior jesus christ to him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity amen paul peter i'm going to keep calling him paul cuz i'm in romans aren't i <laughs> but today we're with peter uh Peter starts the passage off by saying, while you're waiting for these things, he's returning to the return of the Lord. While you're, while you're waiting for the return of the Lord, while you're waiting on the judgment of God, while you're waiting in a 9-11 world, do this. And, and he gives four very specific things that are to, to define, that are to guide, that are to give direction to how we live, to how we respond to the reality of a 9-11 world and the return of Christ. The first thing he says here is, be a peacemaker. Be somebody who makes peace. Now, it says there that we are to make every effort. That, that word, every effort, it may be in your translation there, it's the word diligence. Now, you think about, what, do you, what would you apply the word diligence to? Man, they were diligent. That word diligent, it means they worked hard, doesn't it? They, they worked hard. They, they even, it implies sweat. You went beyond. You worked really hard at it. You know, folks, you and I, uh, we can look at a, a troubled relationship, a troubled situation, and we can think, now, what, what can I do to make that better? What can I do to fix that? And maybe we'll make some effort at that. And, but, you know, the other person doesn't do what they're supposed to. You ever seen that? Once or twice? You know, the other person isn't helping make things better. Or, or their efforts, your efforts, everybody's efforts. It does not get fixed. It's just getting worse. And, and, and when we try to make something better and it doesn't work, we kind of throw our hands up. This passage implies that when you get to that time of throwing your hands up, that's when your work starts. That's when you roll up your sleeves. That's when diligence begins. You are to be diligent. You are to work hard to the point of sweat. What the other person is doing is irrelevant. Whether you think it's working or not is irrelevant. You are to work hard at making peace. Now, peace, that's a, that's a lack of tension, isn't it? A, a lack of stress, a lack of anxiety, on the positive side, we might say, peace is when you've got that, that state of being that, that, that everything's good. There's just a, a state of rightness. All's right in my world. I'm, I'm happy. Life is good. Life is where I want things. That's peace. You and I are to make every effort 
to create a sense of peace in others. That means, folks, this is, this is going on in every relationship of our lives. I'd love to say this is something you do once or twice a week. It's something you do all day long, every moment of the day. I, I mean, from your most intimate relationships of, of, of your mate and, and your children to best friends, down to co-workers and friends and neighbors, down here to strangers. And we know the New Testament even takes us all the way down here to enemies, doesn't it? In every one of these relationships, I'm constantly thinking, what is my role to create a state of peace in this situation and in this relationship? What can I do so that there's a sense of well-being? And Peter says that for you and I to be really effective and successful at this, we've got to operate from a base of purity. He says, man, let there not be a, a spot or a blemish found in you. Now, there's a variety of reasons why that's the case. I just want to discuss one of them. It's a very functional reason of why I've got to operate from purity to create peace. Very simple thing. You know what? When you sin, it creates tension inside you, doesn't it? When you sin, you don't feel good. It's kind of a bad feeling in your gut. Yeah, it, sin causes stress. As a matter of fact, folks, if you can sin with any frequency and it not cause stress, that's a problem. That's when you actually stop and ask yourself if you're actually a real child of God or not. Because you see, if you are a real and genuine child of God, then that means the Holy Spirit, why He would do this, I don't know, has chosen to live inside me. He has chosen to make this body His home. And He is not comfortable when I decorate it with sin. So when He's uncomfortable, guess who He's going to make uncomfortable? Me. So when I sin, there's going to be discomfort. When I sin, there's going to be stress. There's going to be tension. There's going to be anxiety. If you can sin without that happening, there's a problem. And so the idea here is, if, if I'm sinning, if I'm harboring private sins, if, I'm, if I've just got sin in my life, then there's going to be, there's always going to be that little rumble, that little turmoil going on there. Well, folks, if there's a little storm brewing inside of me, I'm not going to bring any peace and help to a storm outside of me. You cannot effectively make peace outside of you if you're not living it within you. So he says, you and I have to have a commitment to pursuing a life of purity. Folks, we've got to care about sin. We can't say, oh, God, God will forgive. Oh, God, God will love me anyway. You know what? He does forgive. And he does love. But folks, sin is still destructive. Sin's still a mess. And it still keeps you from being and doing what you want to be and do in this world and what God wants you to be and do in this world. So he says you've got to operate from purity to make peace. Boy, you remember what Jesus said? Sermon on the Mount. He said, boy, my dad and I, we love peacemakers. Man, we, my dad and I, we got a special blessing for those who can be described as peacemakers. Folks, maybe a way that we can think about this all week. I'd love to say do it three times. That's, that won't work. All week long. Maybe a way we can just kind of start disciplining and training ourselves to think about, am I a peacemaker, is to do this. Let's think about rooms. Every time you leave a room this week, how many rooms are you going to be in? How many rooms are you going to leave? Every time you leave the bedroom. 
Every time you leave the living room, every time you leave the office room, every time you leave the classroom, every time you leave a room, discipline yourself to have this thought, did I leave that room better than when I entered it? Whatever the situation in that room, whatever the relationship in that room, did I make efforts? Was I diligent about leaving that room in just a little bit better place? You say, well, I can't make that better. That's not all. No, maybe you can't make it better. Maybe it's not all your responsibility. But what God would say is, did you play your role? What did you do so that when you left that room, it was just a little bit better? You know what, folks? It might be a very good relationship in that room. What did you do to leave it even better? What did you do so that a state of peace, a state of well-being was created in that moment? Folks, this is to guide our life. This is what I do in a 9-11 world. This is what we're to do while we're waiting on the return of the Lord. We're to be peacemakers. Peter said a second thing we're to do is we're to be a witness. You see it there when he says, man, don't, don't regard the Lord's not returning yet. Uh, that, that's an opportunity. That's an opportunity for salvation. Folks, I said it last week. I'll say it again this week. You have been left on this planet for one thing, and that is to be a witness to the name of Jesus Christ. You are a witness to the gospel. It's the one reason you're on this planet. Now, when I say one reason, we got all kinds of things we do on this planet, don't we? All kinds of things we're responsible for, all kinds of things. Scripture even commands us to be responsible for and to take care of and and to do well. Folks, all of those things are no more than platforms for being a witness for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every one of those relationships, every one of those situations in life is a platform for you to be a witness for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Man, we can talk all day long, couldn't we? About what America needs to do, what America needs to change, how, what, would, what would make America better. Folks, America is only going to be better when the heart's changed and the heart's changed one heart at a time when the gospel of Jesus Christ reaches out and touches it. Man, we're to be peacemakers. We're to be a witness to the truth, to all the questions out there. Third thing, we're to be on guard. See that there in your passage? Be on guard that you're not led to instability. Now, we all want that. I mean, I want stability. I want stability in my home. I want stability in my country. And I want stability everywhere in between. We, we want a stable life, a secure life, a, a firm foundation. Well, he says, be on your guard so that you don't get led to instability. Now, you know, if you're told to be on guard, it's for two reasons. One, somebody knows you're getting ready to get attacked. Hey, man, I overheard somebody. They're getting ready to rob your house tonight. Hey, I overheard somebody at work. They're coming after you. You know, if I know somebody's coming at you, I'm going to be ready, be on guard, be careful. There's another reason we tell people to be on guard. Because we know they have a tendency to fall asleep. We know that in that area right there, they're not very careful. We say that to our kids a lot, don't we? Now, when you go out, you be careful because we know they're not thinking about being. We be careful. Now, which one does Peter mean? Both. See, Peter knows for a fact somebody is coming at you with an agenda to lead you away from God. Somebody is coming at you to implant an agenda that will make you more like the world than God. It's a fact. So he says, be on guard. But he also says, be on guard because he knows that me and you and every single one of us, we have a propensity to really, really not be careful about everything flowing through this mind. I mean, we just let all kinds of stuff flow right through that and we don't realize how our heart and our mind is being shaped 
and how we're thinking. To be on guard means I'm very aware of what my attitudes are, what my values are, and where they came from. It's not an evaluation you do on New Year's Eve. This is something you're doing all of the time, maybe weekly. Hey, why did I make those decisions this week? Why did I act that way? Why did I respond this way? Where's my thinking coming from? Folks, you know, I could just start throwing out issues. Where does your thinking come from on marriage? On divorce? On homosexual marriage? On living together? Where does your thinking come from on money? The economy? Where does your thinking come from on the government? on authority, on the environment. You've got thoughts on these things. And these thoughts sooner or later lead you to attitudes and actions. I mean, your thoughts are going to lead you to act. Where are those thoughts coming from? They're only coming from two places, the Word or the world. That's it. Now, folks, please understand, being here today doesn't mean your thoughts are coming from the Word. It is very, very much within our ability to come in here today and say, man, I believe the Word of God. I read the Word of God. I I confess the Word of God and go out and live just like the world by one o'clock today. As a matter of fact, it's not possible. It happens every single Sunday. Every day that we say amen in churches all across America, we leave our celebration of the Word and go right out and live like the world. Is that not the truth? I'm not saying every single one of us, but as a whole, it absolutely happens. So Peter says, be on your guard. Be aware that you can be led to be living like the world. So i got to stop and say, where did these come from? Folks, you need to look at your life, your actions, your attitudes, your values, the actions, decisions you made this week. Can you tie them to the Word of God? Can you see right here is where the Word of God directed how I responded, how I acted, and what I did in that moment. And if you can't tie it to the Word of God... I'd suggest there's a really pretty decent chance then that it is the world that has shaped and molded that. I mean, folks, a lot of us, we'd consider ourselves really, really disciplined if we spent 15 minutes a day in the Bible, wouldn't we? What's 7 times 15? Is 105 minutes? Shoot. I, I spend 105 minutes in front of the TV every single day. And then that's not counting the things that come flying into my mind from things I'm not even thinking about, from newspapers and, and magazines and the radio. And all. Do you see what a head start the world has in shaping how you think? Be on your guard. Last thing that Peter says there is be growing. Be growing. Now, folks, if you want something to grow, you measure it, don't you? If you want it to grow, you measure it. We didn't do this on purpose last fall, apparently, when... Uh, uh, Halloween was over. We took our pumpkins and gourds. Gourd is a stupid word, isn't it? I don't like the word gourd. And it's a stupid pumpkin. A gourd is a pumpkin that just never grew up. Okay? Well, we had both in our house. I didn't buy the gourds, I assure you of that. So we threw them outside, apparently, in, 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 the, in the bed right next to us. And now they're growing. Never, never had that before. I mean, we've got a vine. I got like six somethings out there. I don't know yet. I think they might be gourds. I'm going, come on, Lord, don't let them be gourds. But I think they're gourds. Uh, but so I'm going out there because I want them to be pumpkins. I want them to grow. I want them to get big. Okay, so I'm, I'm looking at them every day. I'm measuring. You want something to grow, you measure it, don't you? Hey, you know, we, we do that a lot. We, most of us, we, we got a door frame in the house somewhere. You know where you mark growth? Four years and two months. Five years and one month. Seven years and three months. And I think, a, I think this happens on a lot of door frames. Somewhere in there you completely forget for like three years. 
And then you go, ha, ah! you know, and then you line them all up real quick. And there's this big white paint spot right there. And then, you know, we're up here at 11 and 12 and uh, you measure growth. Folks, you and I have been commanded in scripture to grow. You see that? Grow. Now, if we're to grow, then that means I'd want to measure, right? I'd want to be measuring. Is growth happening? Folks, I think sometimes we just think, well, you know, if I come and sit in church and I talk to some Christian folks, then maybe when Jesus comes back, I'll have grown. I don't even do that with my pumpkins. If we want to grow, it's got to be measured. So I've got to be asking myself, am I more gracious today than I was a year ago? Am I more gracious in how I handle and deal with people, their fears, their frustrations, their failures, the things that get up under our skin? Am I more gracious today? I mean, how am I going to measure that? How am I going to, what, what, you know, I need to look at some relationships today. Maybe some relationships I know have frustrated me. How am I handling them today compared to a year ago? Can I see growth in grace? Can I see growth in knowledge? Am I more knowledgeable of Jesus and his word today than I was a year ago? Am I more knowledgeable of the experience of following Jesus daily in this world than I was a year ago? How can I measure that? What would I, what would I put that up to? Are you measuring? So why, why, why would I measure? Because Jesus is coming back and he's going to measure. Why would I measure? Because we live in a 9-11 world, folks. It's not a game. This is for real. And we need to measure. We need to be growing. Notice it says grace and knowledge. It's not one or the other. You need both. Grace without knowledge becomes what our world celebrates today. Tolerance. You accept anything and everything, which actually makes things worse. Grace has to be coupled with knowledge. And knowledge has to be coupled with grace. Knowledge without grace becomes a dictatorial set of rules that you use to cut and and enslave people. Not free them up. Not guide them in what is true. We're to grow in both. I made the comment a moment ago that I... I don't believe we're better today than we were 10 years ago. I believe we're further from God as a nation than we were 10 years ago. There are certainly things that suggest different, but as a whole, I believe we're a godless, immoral, arrogant nation that is looking for new, inventive ways to fly in the face of God. Boy, what a moment. A moment. Ten years ago, this afternoon, our nation turned and looked up. And it was just a moment. Now my little Johnny Raincloud opinion, I don't know if I'm right. That's my opinion. It doesn't have to be yours. I'm not suggesting it should be your opinion. I'm not suggesting I'm right. As I look out there and measure and evaluate and see what's going on, that's just kind of where I am. But you know, whether I'm right or not is not the issue today. The issue is, what are you going to do with 9-11? What are we going to do with 9-11? I believe Peter would say to us, listen, as you're trying to live in this world, as you're evaluating and responding to world events, as you're waiting on the return of the Lord, man, be somebody who makes the place better. When you leave the room, it should be better than when you entered it. Folks, that's a command. That's a defining principle of our lives. Not a neat idea in extracurricular activity. It should happen in every room we enter this week. 
We should be going into that room with an answer too. The answer, one answer, we're a witness for the name of Jesus Christ. And we've got to be careful. We've got to be guarded as we live in this world. We, we can be trying to be a peacemaker. We can be trying to carry the gospel. But if we're not careful, we'll end up living just like the world. And we should be somebody who's just kind. You know what, folks? There, there really are a lot of reasons to be angry, aren't there? There's reasons to hate. But you know what? When I look out there in the world, I think we got hate and anger covered. I think it's covered. You know, you know, this world needs some hate and anger. It's, it's good. We got it. There are a big long line of people who will cover the hate and the anger. So God says, hey, while you're waiting on me in this 9-11 world, I want you to be kind. I want you to be accepting. I want you, yes, to be tolerant. But with truth. Not accepting for the sense of saying everything's okay, it doesn't matter. Accepting for the purpose of guiding to truth. What impact will remembering 9-11 today have on your life? What impact will it have on your home? You understand, if it has no impact on my life and your life, on my home and your home, it will absolutely have no impact on the United States of America. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I come before you today, and as I'm reminded of those verses we studied a while back in Romans chapter 1, where people became so arrogant and so godless, you finally let them go. You, you turned them over to their sin. God, don't let that happen in our nation. Please don't turn us over to our sin. God, I know we're making decisions individually and as a nation that look like we could care less what you think. God, don't turn us over to our sin. And Lord, I'd like to ask that you turn our heart and our eyes to you again without it being a tragedy, a crisis that causes that. God, be gracious with us and let us turn and see you again. Call our nation back to you. And I pray we would acknowledge you. God, I pray we would acknowledge you in the government. We'd acknowledge you in the, in the home and everywhere in between. God, I do pray for your protection over our land. I pray for prosperity. God, I pray we'd get to the place where we want you more than we want protection and prosperity. We want the living God in our lives and in our homes. And we want to walk the path you've laid, a path of stability, a path that's good. Lord, I pray you'll give that opportunity to this country through our lives here in this room. May we go out into our world to do nothing more than what you've called us to do as we wait on you. It's in Jesus' name we pray this. Amen.